Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. From 1 Peter chapter 5. Yeah, please stand. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. This is the word of the Lord. So we have, we've been talking about this last few weeks. We're, as a church, we're, our structure is to be led by elders, and so we're commissioning two new elders this morning, and so we thought it'd be a good time just to take a break from our series in Abraham and talk about the topic of spiritual leadership, and really, um, particularly in light of last week's message um, that John gave and, and Kelly shared and his message on Hagar and um, you know, a, a spiritual leader, Abraham, who in, uh, in ways enabled a system that was abusive towards Hagar and just how that ties to the spiritual leadership problems that the church is having at large, the church at large. And we got our own problems, but the church at large is having uh, today and what spiritual looks like, spiritual leadership looks like in our church. So let me start that by just making a couple of general statements and talking for a minute about leadership in general and then get into the specific passage for the day and talking about um, leadership within, within the church. And so this is my first statement, is we need leadership. So on a scale of 1 to 10, 1 being like, no, not really, and 10 being, yeah, for sure, like, what would you think about we need that statement, we need leadership, on a scale of 1 to 10, what do you think? 11. All right. Anybody else? 10. Anybody at like a 3? No anarchists in the congregation this morning. Um, we do. Now, if I change that statement to we need leaders, I think the number would go down a few ticks because leaders don't do leadership as well as we want them to. And so we know we need leadership, but leaders um, is a little bit tougher. And leadership is so ingrained in life that I think we don't even think about it. Um, we're so structured in so many ways that we can't conceive of what it would be like to not have leadership. I think that's why there's a bit of a fascination with dystopian movies where like the wheels fall off completely and what would that be like? So the Hunger Games or the Matrix or um, Terminator or WALL-E or uh, the best one of all, the Planet of the Apes, the original Planet of the Apes. Anybody? Yeah, remember that? Or the 2024 presidential election. I'm sorry, I just couldn't help myself. Sorry, I just couldn't help myself on either side, whatever. So we take structure and leadership for granted um, but we need it. So can you think of a good, the best leader you've ever had? Or the best boss that you've ever had? Anybody got someone that comes to mind? <laughs> Nobody. 
It's not good. Let's, anybody? Um, yeah, mine was probably uh, a, a woman named Gail Marsh was boss in, in grad school. I was going to grad school for something other than this and working at a hospital at, at Ohio State. And she, um, uh, Gail was composed. Um, she's just calm. And she wasn't like, she wasn't on a scale of, of one to ten. She wasn't like five calm. She was like six or seven. So she's above average but just composed and consistent. Um, she was kind, uh, but she was intense, and so you knew there was something just underneath the surface there um, that was useful. She was competent, and she was confident without being arrogant, and she really cared. Uh, so she, I remember her sitting me down and saying, you know, your grad student, she's, I was going through the same program she had gone through. She said, what do you want to do afterwards? Is there some way that we can craft an experience for you as an intern that's beneficial for you and beneficial for us as an organization. And I, she was great. That's like the first real boss that I had, and I thought she was fantastic. She's a good leader. Can you think of the worst leader that you've ever had? Um, what are some characteristics of a bad leader? Yeah, controlling, insecure, self-centered, dishonest, pardon me, incompetent. Lazy. Man, those came fast, y'all. Uh, <laughs> so <laughs> I thought, someone said this years ago, that as a leader you want to delegate. I remember them saying this, but there's like a spectrum of that. And so there's delegation in the middle, and there's micromanaging on one end, and there's abdicating on the other end. And so you want a leader that will delegate and like follow up with that, but you don't want one that will abdicate and then just leave you alone at, with it and give you no help, but then keep you totally accountable for it. And you don't want someone that is like treating you like a puppet and really they're gonna do it through you, but they're gonna micromanage the whole situation. And that's been a helpful framework for me. And then beyond that, like having leaders that are dishonest or self-concerned, um, or they're just in it for themselves and they will use you to get whatever they want. Like we've all got examples of leaders um, that have not been helpful. And yet, like, we still have leaders because we know even though we're not going to find perfect leaders, we need leaders. And if you don't have leaders, then it's like anarchy. You know, it's every man for himself. There's no coordination. You don't really go anywhere. And everything devolves in a situation where there's no leaders. Is it better to have bad leaders or no leaders? How many think it's better to have no leaders? And how many think it's better to have bad leaders? I'm on the bad leader side just because I think none of us is a perfect leader, and so to some way, shape, or form, all we have is bad leaders. Like, that's too cynical probably, but you know what I mean. Like, we don't have perfect leaders, but we still need leadership. Okay, that's the first statement. Here's the second statement. We don't really like being led. Scale of 1 to 10, what do you think about that? 5? Nobody else? What? It does depend on the leader in a lot of situations. Um, there is a, a, like a term, radical individualism, that people use to describe our culture in the United States in particular, in the West at large, and that I'm, in, I'm confident I don't understand in ways that people study that do because it's the air we breathe as a culture. But it's just this have it your way. If I can dream it, I can do it. I don't need any help. The, the Clint Eastwood you know, Matt Damon's Jason Bourne or Liam Neeson, and like the stereotype that I can do all this stuff on my own and, do, and like the lone wolf type of thing that is part of our culture. Um, in, we're increasingly disconnected, not just the last few years with COVID, but so many ways we're disconnected from each other. Um, 
We have an epidemic of loneliness. You can find all sorts of literature on that. I've said this before about years ago, I read this guy that said, we think of poverty strictly in financial and material terms, but he said there's other forms of poverty. You can be relationally poor and emotionally poor and spiritually poor. And I think you could make a really strong argument in the United States. We, over the last 50 years, have financially gotten richer overall, but we've become relationally and emotionally and spiritually poorer, and we're fine with it. And that all plays into the whole idea of radical individualism. Um, I think about, it is our national pastime to complain about leaders. Um, I mean, I just did it with the election and politicians, any of them, you know, uh, bosses, uh, the police, teachers, um, kids, parents, uh, or adults, parents, um, your homeowners association, uh, the referees in your kids' sporting event. I lost it just a little bit yesterday, um, but he deserved it. So, <laughs> the DMV. Right? I could just say, hey, for the next hour, we're going to complain about the DMV and pray, and that'd be it. You guys would be like, Jeff, that's the best sermon you've ever preached in your life. Like, you guys, it's been our problem since the beginning of time. And so, the beginning of the Bible, the Garden of Eden, God puts, uh, puts Adam and Eve in there, says, there's this tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat from that. And that is like saying, begging them, let me lead you. There's the knowledge of good and evil. I didn't create you with the capacity to handle that on your own. I will process that for you, give it to you on an as-needed basis. I want you to have a relationship with me, to depend on me. And so that is like, let me lead you. And, um, and then the serpent, Satan, comes in there and says, hey, he's not for you. That's, I know he says he is, but he's against you. He doesn't love you. He loves himself. He knows that when you eat of that, it'll be good for you, and it'll be bad for him. What's Satan doing? He's complaining about the boss, right? Like, that's it. And so right from the beginning, we see these two things, and then they play out throughout the rest of Scripture. I was reading Exodus the other day, and Moses gets the people out, into the, gets them out of Egypt, and they're in the desert. They're like in the desert for a hot minute. And they're like, what's the matter, Moses? There weren't enough graves in Egypt. You had to bring us out here in the desert and kill us? I mean, it's the whole thing is about them whining about the leadership. So we don't want to be led. Like we struggle with being led from the very beginning. And yet we're led all the time. Like I saw this, but they did a survey. And if Taylor Swift endorses Biden, 18% of people were somewhat or very much more likely to vote for Biden. We don't want to be led, but this woman could endorse a candidate and it would swing the election for us. You know, we don't want to be led, but we've got a whole category of people on YouTube of all places called influencers, right? That are our leaders. Um, we don't want to be led but Trump, and that is not like a, that's not necessarily a positive or a negative comment. It's just that Trump won the election in 2016 because he, be, he advocated for a group of people that felt like they had no advocate. That's how he won that. Um, that's how he won Michigan and Pennsylvania and Wisconsin and flipped some blue-collar voters that felt like no one was for them. Now, that's kind of being led in the way that you want to go, but like we struggle with this whole area of leadership. So to summarize that, we need to be led. We're not huge fans of it. It's hard to find good leaders. It's hard. Now, into that, this passage and some other passages that I'll add in there about how do you lead a church? What does God do? What does God say about how do you lead um, his people in this time in the midst of it? And I'll start in the middle of this passage 
where Peter says, when the chief shepherd appears. So uh, the shepherd is a metaphor that God uses for spiritual leadership throughout the Bible, uh, in the Old Testament and the New Testament. This week I spent a little bit of time in Ezekiel 34. This great passage where he is, he is, um, he is given the, the Israelite leaders the business, and he said, you have been bad shepherds to my sheep, and talks about the consequence of that, but then promises that David is going to be their shepherd, which is saying that Jesus is going to be the shepherd. And Jesus shows up, and he, one of the ways he describes himself is, I am the good shepherd. Like, I'm the one um, that you've been waiting for. And so here, the chief shepherd is talking about Jesus. When the chief shepherd appears, and he's speaking to elders, saying, this is the boss. God is the leader of his church. God is the one that leads his church. I am um, probably a couple years after we started the church, and some things were getting rough, and I was whining to God about the church. And I was, I was reading a book, it's kind of unrelated, and this pastor made a statement. He said, pastors, remember, Jesus loves your church a whole lot more than you do. And I was like, oh, man, he does. Like, that's a million percent true. And for me, that, like, put this into focus of, like, God is the leader of the church and loves it and is concerned for it and is in charge of it way more than me or any other elder. And the, the language that I'm going to go through in just a minute is tricky because elders shepherd the church. That's the job of an elder is to shepherd, to serve but like as an under-shepherd. And that's tricky because it means that you've got sheep who for a season are called to serve as shepherds or under-shepherds of the chief shepherd who is still shepherding them individually as sheep. And that is the gist of how you lead a church. And it's complicated, but that's what God does throughout Scripture is he uses people to lead. And so we're going through a series on Abraham, and Abraham was a leader um, of that church and ultimately that nation. Joseph was a leader. Moses was a leader. Joshua was a leader. The judges, when they get into the promised land, are the ones that he calls upon to lead for a season. Um, Israel, at some point, comes to God and says, hey, we want a king. Like, we want to be like all the other nations and have a king. And he's like, well, that's a bad idea, but I'll let you do it. And so they get a king that leads them. And then they get prophets that lead them, basically saying, I told you that was a bad idea. And so here's the consequence of that bad idea. And then once the Jews are dispersed in the Old Testament, they start organizing in synagogues, and they have elders in the synagogues. And the elders are really like the, the forerunner to elders in a church setting. There's a whole thing you can read about that. And elders are the group that he formally calls to lead his church. And so this passage starts where Peter's saying, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. So that's the passage. What is an elder? There's, I'm going to get technical for a second. There's three, three words within these passages that um, are really significant. Presbyteros is an elder. And so you see in that Presbyterian, like that's their that comes, the form of structure for Presbyterians comes out of this. Episkopos is a word for overseer, or sometimes it's translated bishop, and you can see episcopal coming out of that. And then there's another word, poimen, which is um, a shepherd. And in, in the verb form, it's to shepherd or to care for. And so these are the words, and, but when he uses these, elder and overseer are used interchangeably for an office in the church. You appoint people to be elders or overseers of the church. Um, pastoring, poimen, is a function or a gifting, but it's not an office. And so elders, so in this passage, 
I exhort the elders, the presbyteros among you, as a fellow elder, shepherd the flock of God that's among you. So elders shepherd the church. And that's how those things get pulled apart um, in, in Scripture. Another passage. This is Acts chapter 20. This is um, Paul's last missionary journey. He's coming back from it. He's going to go to Jerusalem, and then he's going to get arrested, and he's going to get taken to Rome. And he's coming from Greece, and he goes by Ephesus, which is in Turkey. And he doesn't want to go into the whole church because he doesn't have the time. So he calls the elders out to the coast and, and speaks to them. He calls the presbyteros of the church to come to him. And they came to him, and he said at the end of this passage, pay careful attention to yourselves and pay careful attention to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, episcopos, to care for, I'm not going to try and say that, but you can see the root word for shepherd in there, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So, for us, um, we don't have pastors and elders. Uh, we have staff elders and non-staff elders. You call John and I pastors because um, it's culturally, like it would sound a little Amish to call us elders. Uh, like it just doesn't, it's not the words that we use. So we have elders and like non-staff elders, lay elders, and um, staff elders, and we serve as a body of elders together with equal authority. Within, that is what they call a plurality of elders. That's the word that they use for that. It's also called in every other like, part of life a committee. But I think they made up the word plurality because no one wants to be led by a committee, right? The only thing than being led by a bad leader is being led by a committee. Um, and in fact, when we got our first group of elders three years into the church, um, there were seven or eight elders, and I said, okay, and this is where the stuff between staff elders and non-staff elders gets a little complicated, but I said, I want a performance review at the end of the year, but I don't want a performance review by a committee. I don't want all of you. <laughs> like, I'm asking two of you to take that function on you, get feedback from everybody, but I just can't take a whole committee, like, all over the place, because no one likes that, but that's what God did, and I think that's, I think it's solidly in the Bible. So, First Titus, or Titus 1, uh, verse 5, this is Paul writing to Titus. He said, that's why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order. He's talking about these churches and the need for order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And so you, Titus, go through, identify qualified men and appoint them as elders. Acts 14, this is their first missionary journey. Paul and Barnabas go through Turkey and they get down to, I think it's Derby, and then they come back to the cities that they had gone to. And it says when they preached the gospel to that last city and made many disciples, they returned to these cities they'd gone to previously, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they believed. So that was their, they went through the cities, they made disciples, saw people believe in Jesus, they came back through those cities, they identified people that were qualified to be elders, and then they appointed them as elders with prayer and fasting. If I had to guess, um, God did this. He mandated a plurality of elders for our protection so that it's harder for us to fall under the leadership of one power-hungry, manipulative elder and harder for someone who's inclined in that direction to get in a position of leadership. And that's how so many of the spiritual abuse situations that John talked about last week happen, is when one person becomes the dominant personality in a movement. Now, within that structure of staff elders and non-staff elders, like, it is, there is a different, like, we do have equal weight in that. We probably have different influence 
in part because as a staff elder, there's just a different level of, there's just a different, there's something different about it. And it's inescapable that there's something different for John and I than for the other guys that are elders. And I think Paul speaks to this when he says to Timothy, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. And I think that speaks to probably honor in terms of influence, but also, and it talks about compensating pastors who spend more time on it. And there's just an inevitability that, um, that, that staff elders generally have more training and more experience and have a, an emotional and relational material investment in it that's different than, um, than folks that aren't on staff as elders. It doesn't mean, though, that we have differing levels of authority um, because, because we don't. So that's just a word on that. What do elders do? Well, what do elders do? This is, again, 1 Peter 5. I exhort the elders, the presbyteros among you, shepherd the flock of God that's among you, exercising oversight. And that's the gist of it, shepherding and exercising oversight. Again, from, from um, Acts 20, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. And I will, this pay careful attention to yourselves is something that we take seriously. The first board that we had, we would meet once a month and the first hour of that meeting, we would kind of go around the room and just check in and how everybody was doing spiritually and otherwise as a way of saying, like, are we fit to lead? Um, and wanting to make sure things didn't get away from us. So um, that's been a part of the culture of our, our, our elders from the beginning. Um, so pay careful attention to yourselves and pay careful attention to the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. So elders shepherd the church. Functionally, these are the things that we do. We pray for and care for the people of the church. I mean, it's about the people of the church. Um, when I was talking to Matt Noble, this is over a year ago now, uh, they were new to the church. I knew Matt had planted a church before, and so he had served as an elder, a staff elder, and and um, just knew the deal. And I was like, hey, you've been here for about six months. Is there anything you want to fix? <laughs> like, what do you see that you want to fix? And he's like, oh, I'm, he said, I'm at this point not, I'm more interested in, I'm not interested in building the church, like the organization, the church, and like figuring out how to grow a church. I'm interested in building the church, like the disciples of the church individually, like it's the people. And that just stuck with me. And Matt, um, Matt does work as a biblical counselor, which is really just intensive form of discipleship, and it's building the church. Like, it's about people, praying for, caring for, discipling the church. Um, we guide the ministry philosophy of the church, and so there are systems involved with running a church and making disciples, and so our mission is to help people come to know and follow Jesus. How are we going to do that? There's systems, and the, the elders spend a lot of time trying to figure out what those should look like. We protect the church from false doctrine, and so this is like occasionally, we have a, a high view of Scripture. We think God is going to tell us how to do things through Scripture the, the vast, vast majority of the time. And so we've we got to guard that. And um, the Bible talks about sheep coming in or wolves coming in among the sheep. And a lot of times that has to do with misinterpretations of Scripture. So we spend, it, when the time comes, like that's the group that really works through those issues. Provide church discipline is necessary. That does happen like at on one hand, I could count the number of times where we've had those conversations, but sometimes things go off the rails and a group needs to step in and speak into it, and that's a part of what elders do, and then oversee areas of the church's organization, so budgets and buildings, and 
Whenever I talk about elders, I always put that last because I think when people think about elders or a board, they think that's what comes first, and it's not. Um, it, it comes down towards the end, but those are things that need to be done. How do we select elders? Um, this is, the instruction on this is, um, I think, relatively vague, and so there's a spread of how churches do this in different denominations. So, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. The Holy Spirit has made you overseers. And so I do believe, and, and we try hard to make that a, a process that is led by the Holy Spirit um, and to figure out how the Holy Spirit wants to do that. When they, appoint, when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they believed. And so this is what we see that they did. They prayed and fasted and sought the Holy Spirit. They identified qualified men. And I'm going to go through those qualifications because there's a couple big passages on those qualifications that I moved through fairly quickly. Um, but they, they really matter. Uh, we do, we are, we searched through this issue early in the life of the church. Um, we weren't sure if we were going to have just male elders or male and female elders. We ended up reading through those those um, the positions on either side of that and reading through scripture and ended up being a, a compliment having a complementarian theology when it comes to a church which means we have male elders we have female deacons we have men and women are gifted in every area um, we have phenomenal female leaders It'd be lying if i didn't say there are days i really wish we had female elders it's but that's not what it's about it's about how we understand scripture and that is an issue that we talk about at some length, like it took me an hour to preach that 10 years ago, 15, whatever it was. Um, if you want to talk about it, I'd love to talk about it, and we can work through that together. If you come to the membership class, we always spend a little bit of time, or maybe a lot of time, if it's a, a big question for folks. Um, but that, we do have, uh, we do have male elders, um, and we think that part of that's tied to the household and what Scripture says about the household and the church being the household of God. We don't think it extends beyond the church into the public life, and so that's it. And, and so we and, um, identified qualified men, and then they appointed them as elders. Uh, and so that's what we're trying to do. We regularly, as a board, are working to pray through and identify men who meet the qualifications I'll talk about in a minute. We don't do that based on what we think the elder body could use in terms of skill or personality, but we do it in terms of qualifications and readiness. Part of that qualification is involvement in ministry um, and how that reflects spiritual maturity. We've had um, guys say over time, now's not the time, like just not a time in life where I can commit to that. We've had guys say, I know you think I'm ready, but I know I'm not ready. Um, and so it's a little bit of a messy process. When we get some agreement, guys fill out, fill out a, like an application, um, which is really a lengthy, humbling, personal inventory based on those qualifications. And whenever we give it to guys, I read it over first and think, I shouldn't be an elder. Uh, I'm going to have to quit now uh, because it's hard. I mean, the first qualification is above reproach. Anybody above reproach? Like, you know too much about yourself, you know. And the word means blameless, so it's not quite that. But, like, I'll tell guys, if you get through this application and feel really good about it, you're probably the wrong guy because um, it should be hard. They go through an interview. Their wives participate in that. The church has a chance to ask questions. We vote to affirm them, and then we do what we, we've gotten to today where we're going to commission um, two new elders. We have our elders serve for limited terms. Uh, when we started having elders, we didn't do that. 
Um, we couldn't, it's not, can't find it in scripture specifically. We knew other denominations did it. And I think part of us thought, well, we're smarter than them because it's not in the Bible. And then a little bit of us thought, there's probably a reason they're doing that. And we're going to learn it the hard way. And um, which is the, the downside of being an independent church is you learn some stuff the hard way. Um, but over time, we added that as what I think is, is wisdom. This passage goes on, shepherd the flock that is among you exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, and not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And these things kind of play into that. So here's why we put these limited terms in. One of them is, the, probably the biggest one, is that carrying the weight of an elder is difficult. And I think it's harder than most people think it is until they're doing it. Um, because the weight that you carry is knowing more about personal situations that people are going through and that it's not obvious how to lead in that situation and what God wants us to do and carrying the weight with people of the difficult things that are going on in your lives. And part of it is the organizational stuff that when difficult organizational issues come up, like Last spring, we got into a financial crunch where for the first time we ever, we said, hey, we're in a bit of a financial crunch and payroll. Like, it's the first time we ever said that. The elders carry that weight together, and that's a weight, man. Uh, and so elders carry that weight. I had a, a friend who's a pastor who said that, um, he said he thinks pastoring is like walking around with a weighted vest. You know, they exercise in a weighted vest that you never take off, and, but the weights are not like bars of iron, but they're bars of gold, like they're precious weights, because the weights are the people of the church. And that metaphor stuck with me, because that's it. Um, when I went on sabbatical a few years ago, this is kind of corny, but I came home that Sunday, I went in my garage, I had a backpack full of weights, because we had a bunch of weights in our garage, put it on my back, took it off, took the weights out of the bag, as like a metaphorical way of saying, for the next three months, I'm not carrying this, the weight of this because it's a, it is a constant thing, and thank God we have elders, because when we got elders, like, I knew that we as staff, staff elders or pastors weren't carrying that weight alone, and I, no one's more thankful for elders than I am um, in our church. So the weight of it is heavy. Um, it gives other people a chance to be an elder, so it ensures that we're working to develop and identify elders consistently, and it lessens the chance of it becoming a power thing or a source of resentment within the church or that it becomes an identity for an elder if it's a temporary thing. And there's just some guidelines put into how long you'll be on the board and how long you'll be and when you'll come off of it. And then having new elders and the, the, some turnover provides fresh perspective on the ministry of the church. One of the reasons I'm excited about Matt coming on as an elder is that he's been here for two years and he's been an elder at other churches. And so he offers a perspective that I don't have, having been here um, for as long as I've been here. And for those of you that have only been here a few years, and there's a lot of you, like, has your perspective instead of having my perspective. And I think that's super helpful. So we, we tell guys we want you to serve for a minimum of three years because it probably takes six to 12 months to get, to get you know, going. And, um, and we don't want to keep do this every, all, you know, like constantly be going on and off. And then a maximum, it was five years, we're probably expanding that to seven years, and that came out of a conversation about how, and this is hard, because staff elders don't roll off because we're not, we don't stop eldering, um, whether we're, we're in that official group or not, uh, but 
but it, we do take sabbatical, and then you stop for a period of time then, and so the seven years makes it consistent. If you have questions about that, you can ask me. Okay. Sorry, this is all a little technical, but it, I mean, this is really important stuff. So who should be an elder? And Tim, Paul says to Timothy, he goes through a long list, and again, I'll stop on one or two of these, but these will be pretty quick. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer or elder, he desires a noble task. If you desire to be an elder, let us know. Part of the application is like asking questions about that desire. Like if you desire it to put it on your spiritual resume, that's a problem. If you desire it for power, that's a big problem. Um, but if you feel like God's put this desire on your heart, then that's good. That's what he says. Um, an overseer must be above reproach. That word is translated blameless um, in, other, in other translations. It really is a public-facing no one has anything against that elder that is unresolved and that needs to be dealt with. Um, now, what's hard about that is above, privately, none of us are above reproach. Um, and so I think it privately speaks to the area of salvation. This is Colossians, uh, Colossians 1. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he's now reconciled in his body of flesh, by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. The only way we're above reproach is because of the work of Christ on our behalf. Um, if you're here and you haven't been to church in forever, you've never done this, you're online just checking this out, like this is the most important thing that you'll hear, <laughs> is that we were all once alienated and hostile in mind towards God, not wanting his leadership, doing evil deeds, and he has reconciled us in the body of flesh, by his death, he has taken the penalty for our sins and reconciled to himself. And the only way our reproach goes away is because of what Christ has done for us so that he can present us holy and blameless um, before his father. And that's what a good shepherd does. And so um, there's a public-facing aspect of beyond reproach and a private-facing aspect of it. The husband of one wife. We haven't had this situation, but I don't think that means never divorced. Um, but polygamy was a thing back then. Um, it might be becoming a thing again now. Uh, but, like, it's a thing back then. And um, I had a professor once who talked about how that's qualified by above reproach because there are some biblical caveats for divorce, you know, except for adultery, that, that, that gets spoken into. And so the husband of one wife, I think, is like a current situation and moderated by above reproach. Sober-minded, uh, free from negative, life-dominating influence or intoxicants, another person said circumspect, like just someone that can think clearly through things, self-controlled, um, respectable, uh, hospitable. There's, um, there's some element, this means you have to have people over to your house like every week, but some element of approachability that comes with serving as an elder. Able to teach. I actually think that this should be translated teachable uh, because every other qualification is like a character a character quality and not like a skill. Um, and teachable speaks to humility. And I think that that's what an elder needs to be. Um, if it, even if it's able to teach, I don't think it means they have to be like to, to speak on a Sunday, but someone needs to know the word well enough to instruct um, uh, on a one-on-one -on -one basis when it's needed. When it's needed. Um, not a drunkard. Some people translate that one, not one who sits long over their wine. I mean, if it's one glass of wine, go ahead and sit long over it. But I think they mean like you're drinking the whole bottle or several. 
Um, not quarrelsome over wine. Not something that's like dominating your life. Uh, not violent, but gentle. And I'm going to spend a minute here. Um, gentle in our culture, I think, implies weakness. And it's not that. Um, some translate it gracious. Um, someone speak to it. It's not weakness, but it's being yielded. Um, Jesus, when he invites those who are weary and heavy laden to come to him, uh, he talks about how he is gentle and humble in heart. And that's not the exact same word. It's a similar word in Greek and can be translated gracious as well. And grace, the best well, a definition I've heard of that is power under control. Power under control. And I think that's kind of what this is getting at. In, in this passage in Peter that I'm going through, he says, not domineering over those in your charge. Not domineering over those in your charge. And I think this speaks to that. So when Jesus um, was at the Last Supper, uh, his disciples get in this fight over who's the greatest disciple, which is pretty amazing if you think about it, you know? Like, if we had an elder meeting where we got in a fight over who was the greatest elder, like, we would all quit, you know? Like, we'd just disband the whole thing, because um, that's crazy, and these are his disciples. And Jesus speaks into them and says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. And that word exercise authority is the same word in this, this passage in, in 1 Peter 5, where he's, it's domineering. They domineer over them. And that's so much of what we think about when it comes to leadership. They domineer over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's power under control. And so the one who could do whatever he wanted served us and died for us, and that's the type of leadership um, that Christ wants, not just for his church. That's the type of leaders that he wants his followers to be. So not violent, but gentle. One guy said about this, he said, um, the gentleness that Paul requires is a personally yielded disposition to the lordship of Christ. The church elder, having been placed in a role of leadership and authority by the Holy Spirit, exercises his authority in the church in a manner that reflects his conscious submission to the lordship of Christ. Even as he makes leadership decisions and carries authority, his expectations of others and his demeanor are regulated by his own proper subjection to Christ, the chief shepherd. And he says an apt opposite to this could be self-satisfied intransigence, which I had to look up and means refusal to change one's views on something with a hard unreasonableness. And so that not violent but gentle, I think, is like a really important one given our time. Not quarrelsome, not someone who's picking a fight all the time, not a lover of money, and um, some, someone whose life isn't dominated by their things. Paul goes on, or Peter, Paul goes on, he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive, for if someone doesn't know how to manage his household, how will he care for God's church? I think there's some cultural stuff you got to read into that, like when they were in that age, by the time their kids were 14 or 15, they probably weren't in the house, you know, so what does that mean in our day? But I think there's an, an, an aspect of managing someone's household that you can, you can kind of get a sense for, and a metaphor for the church in scripture is the household of God. And so um, the elders are like fathers of the household of God. He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into combination with the devil. And there is just some benefit to having someone who's followed Jesus for a, a good bit of time. Um, and moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so he may not fall into this disgrace, the snare of a devil. Okay. What is an elder? What do elders do? How do we choose elders? 
is the, that's the stuff. If you have questions about that stuff, you can ask me, um, ask any of us. We'd love to talk to you about it. Peter, at the end of this passage, which is where I started, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Um, we need to be led. We're not huge fans of it. It's hard to find good leaders. How do you lead a church? This is how and why I think God says we're supposed to lead um, a church and underneath the chief shepherd who's in charge of all of us sheep. Then Peter says, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Okay. When I became, I wasn't, became an elder at our last church, I was like 27. I was coming on staff as a youth pastor. He's like, I have to make you an elder before I can make you a pastor because pastors are elders. I didn't know anything. And I'm like, um, first I was like, do I need to go to seminary to be a pastor? And he's like, well, they didn't have seminaries in the Bible. Jesus just kind of trained guys. I'm like, okay. And then I'm like, well, don't I have to be older to be an elder? And he's like, well, Timothy was an elder, and he wasn't older. And I'm like, okay. Uh, that's how my conversations with Mike went. And, but he, he was a good boss uh, and pastor. Um, I, that's, there's some nuance in that that we could talk about if you want to. Like, it doesn't say how old an elder should be. And you're not all younger than the elders. Some of you are older than the elders. So I don't, this next part, though, <laughs> clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. This is not just elders and non-elders. This is just everybody. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. I have said this for years. My number one qualification for an elder is humility. Like humility before the Lord and humility before elders. I think all the qualifications, in a way, point to it. I think what I said at the beginning, that elders are sheep who are called for a season to serve as under-shepherds to their chief shepherd, Jesus, who is still their shepherd because they're still sheep, makes this whole thing pretty tricky. And it, it takes someone with a good bit of humility, and it takes a group of people with a good bit of humility for this um, to work. Because you could sit there as not being elders and say, these people are sheep just like I am, you know, and that's totally true. And, but what we believe that Scripture says is that the Holy Spirit for a season has called them into a role in the body of Christ of leadership in this form as being elders. And it just takes humility on everybody's part for that to work effectively. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And I think that speaks to the delicate nature of the situation that the devil could see that as a, an opportunity to wreak some havoc. And, um, and it will only work if people are paying attention to that and are submitted to the Lord. So just a few... Um, a few closing comments on that. When that works, I think it's a beautiful picture of leadership in a world and to a world that needs a beautiful picture of leadership. Um, I think it's not just about leading as elders in a church, but how we should lead as parents, as spouses, as bosses, as teachers, as coaches, whatever area of your life you're a leader in, like these things apply to that. And there's a model for leadership. Um, that would serve as a form of um, like evangelism, of showing people the goodness of God through your leadership. I'll say this. If you're here or, or listening, tuning in, 
and you've never submitted to the leadership of your chief shepherd, like that's all you needed to hear today, is that that thing in the garden is totally true of us. God's like, let me lead you. I'm smarter than you. I'm better than you. If you eat from the fruit of that tree, it's not going to taste good. It's going to be poisonous. It's going to be problems. And we do it anyway. And I've been following Jesus for a long time. Every day, in some way, shape, or form, I do that, you know, because um, he's still sanctifying me to conform me to the image of Christ. Uh, he sent you, the chief shepherd, to show you that he's gentle and lowly of heart, that his burden is easy, that his yoke is light, that he's laid down his life for his sheep, that he calls you to trust him. And he didn't do all that for nothing and didn't give up his life for you for nothing. He did it because you need it. And so surrender yourself um, to your chief shepherd and under the leadership of Christ and the salvation that he offers you. If you haven't done that, that's all you needed to hear today. Um, and if you've done that um, and you haven't been baptized, let us know because we're fixing to do some baptisms in a little while. And baptism is this beautiful picture of that salvation where it says that we have died with Christ as Christ has died, and in Christ, we have been raised to new life. We go under the water to symbolize our death with him, and then we're raised to new life in Christ. It's a beautiful picture of it. It's what he calls us to do to publicly proclaim what Christ has done with him.